And I usually start off my uh, sermons with a story that kind of gets us primed for the topic. Um, I figured I would cut out a little bit of the stories this morning because the topic itself is probably going to keep you engaged. Uh, so we're going to jump right in. But I do want to answer this question. Some of you might be here. You might be a guest and go, why in the world are we talking about this uh, this morning? There's lots of other things we could talk about. Uh, we believe God's word is sufficient. And we trust the sovereignty of God. We trust the sufficiency of his word. Um, and we are faithfully walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the beauty of expository preaching. Um, if you want to know what we're talking about next week, just read a few verses ahead. And you'll see that next week we're going to talk about um, being people of integrity and keeping your oaths and all of those kind of things. Uh, keeping your word with one another as believers. So um, expository preaching is actually a really good thing. Um, and Jesus felt it necessary to dive into sex and sexuality and lust and adultery and all of those things very early on in his sermon. And if Jesus thinks it's good, uh, we think it's good as well. Uh, we really do. And the beauty of expository preaching especially is I don't want a year from now, six months from now, for you to think back and go, what was that one quote that Parker said or that one point that he made? Was it in the relationship series? Was it in the, like the topical series are great, um, but six months from now and a year from now, I want you to say, okay, what does Matthew say? Not what did Parker say in a quote or in a story or those kind of things, but what does the scripture say? And the beauty of us walking verse by verse through scripture and explaining it to you is then you can go and sit down with someone and show them the gospel in Matthew chapter five, verses 27 through 32. Does that make sense? I don't want you to remember what I said. I want you to be able to understand and see for yourself what Matthew has to say. Um, it will help you in your walk with Christ, your intimacy with Christ, all those kind of things, and your ability to share the gospel with others. Um, so that's why we walk verse by verse through uh, passages of Scripture, through chapters of Scripture and all of those kind of things. But I do want to give you the context, because some of you haven't been here, um, some of you are guests, and the context of this sermon is Jesus is writing this sermon to believers, um, or he's not writing, he's speaking this sermon. Matthew recorded it. Um, but Jesus is giving this sermon to believers, people that are already have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They've already forsaken their homes, their livelihoods, and said, I'm following Jesus. And he starts the sermon with describing who we are at a heart level. This whole sermon is geared towards your heart. He's gonna take our topic today, which was a very outward adultery, <clears throat> acts of the hand, right? This, this external action, and he's gonna get it back to the heart level. And this whole sermon is geared at our heart. And he starts in verses one through 12 of chapter five, talking about here's who true believers are. And it's not just the way into Christianity or into the kingdom. This is how we stay. That we weren't just poor in spirit on the night that we raised our hand and we received Jesus Christ, but we stay, we live in a state that's poor in spirit. That as believers, we realize that we bring nothing to the table spiritually. That on our best days, scripture describes our righteousness as filthy rags, right? Paul lays out his earthly righteousness and says, he, he counted as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and receiving his righteousness, right? That we know that we're poor in spirit, we bring nothing to the table, that we're not saved because Jesus looked down and said, you've finally done enough, you've behaved well enough. I need you on my team. It's none of that. We're broken before Jesus, we're poor in spirit. Um, <clears throat> he starts with, uh, we're poor in spirit, and then we mourn over our sin, right? We know that we bring nothing to the table. The only thing we bring to this exchange is our sin, actually, and we mourn over that. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, and it's not a righteousness that we can produce. So thank goodness that in the gospel, we have God's righteousness put on us, and we hunger and thirst for more of that in our lives, more of that in our families, more of that in this community, more of that in the world. 
And then he moves on to talk about, okay, here's who they are. Here's who we are as believers. We're poor in spirit. We mourn. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, all of those kind of things. And then he moves into, here's how you live. Here's what we do. That we are a light to the world as believers. That us living in light of the gospel and response to the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, that it is a light to the world. Not that we save the world or anything like that, but much more like John the Baptist. Um, as John 1 describes him, he wasn't the true light, but he bore witness about the true light. Um, the only light in us is Christ, is a, is a renewed heart in the gospel. That's the only light that we have to offer the world. And just like John the Baptist, we bear witness about the true light and that when people see our good works and our good deeds in response to the gospel, they'll give glory to our Father in heaven. And just like salt that makes us thirsty and makes us hunger, um, that as we live in light of the gospel and as we share the gospel, that we would be God's means to be salt of the earth and to create more of a hunger and more of a thirst for God because of our message and because of our, the way we live our lives in response to what Jesus has done in our hearts. And then he gets to the law. And this is kind of, kind of the linchpin in the sermon is Pharisees, scribes, everybody was wondering, okay, is this new way? Is this way of Jesus? Is this way of the kingdom? Is it apart from the Old Testament? Are we just throwing it out? And Jesus says, no, 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 we're not throwing it out. In fact, he elevates the standard of the law. The Pharisees had a very low view of the law. They thought that the law needed 1,500 more um, addings of their interpretation. It wasn't good enough. Let's add what we think it needs to say. Let's add 1,500 extra things. And they had a low view of the law because they thought they could obey it, right? That they literally stood before the Jewish world and proclaimed to be righteous, they were trying to, to communicate that they were obeying the law. They had a very low view of it. And Jesus elevates the law. We don't need to add anything to it. He says, not one jot or tittle or whatever your translation says, dot or iota, will ever fade from the law until heaven and earth fade away. That I didn't come to abolish or throw out the law. I came to fulfill it. I'm gonna rightfully interpret it. I'm gonna tell you what the intent of the law is. And then not only that, I'm gonna obey it in your place. That's the goodness of the gospel. And then we've moved into Jesus taking these external realities of the law and getting us to its original intent. The faithful interpreter, the word of God himself in human flesh, telling us what the law of God, what the word of God means. It's the greatest sermon ever recorded. And he's gonna get some of these external Christian behaviors and get us back to the heart. And we talked about last week that the beauty of the kingdom and what we look forward to most about heaven is not just that we're not gonna murder each other, right? But it's that there's no evil, there's no anger, there's no hatred, there's no bitterness. And as believers, we don't have to wait until heaven to experience that. We experience it now because we have offended God with all of our sin and he has reconciled us to himself. He has forgiven us. And now we can be people who are quick to forgive others. We're quick to reconcile. It's the kingdom way. We don't say, ah, they'll get over it. They're tough. They're adults. They'll be fine. No, that when we know, as Paul says in Romans, as far as it depends on us, we live at peace with all men that we leave our sacrifice at the altar. We don't want the, the symbol of worship. We want the substance of true worship, which is loving God and loving our neighbor. It's one thing to come in here and raise your hands. It's another thing to go to your brother and apologize. And Jesus says, put your hands down and go do the substance. Go do what's genuine worship, and that's to love me by loving the people made in my image. And we talked about that last week. You can listen to that if you want to. This week, uh, last week was Jesus' kind of interpretation of the sixth commandment, which you shall not murder. This week, Jesus moves right into, I don't know why, uh, he moves right into conveniently the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. And this is what he says. He says, you've heard that it was said, this is Matthew 5, 27, 
you shall not commit adultery. Now, I want to camp out here for a minute because, remember, Jesus is not saying, you've heard it said this, but I'm about to pull the rug out and throw it out from under you. He's not saying we're about to throw out this old way. This was actually a really good thing. This is God's law. This is part of the Ten Commandments. This is God communicating his righteousness and his holiness that we should not commit adultery. And let me just say this, especially if you um, grew up in the South, um, if you had an upbringing that might have been like mine, I'm not going to mention the church that I went through as a child or anything like that, Uh, but some of you might have grown up in an environment that you were taught that sex, especially, is just really, 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 really bad and dirty and evil, right? Right? that the Bible is against sex, that church is really bad, and then you get married and suddenly it just becomes a really good thing. And I don't know if you're like me, but as a teenager, I remember growing up and be like, how does that work? Like, how does something so evil and so bad, um, how does like standing in front of a preacher and saying a few things suddenly make something that was once insanely evil something really instantly good? Um, That might've been the the teaching that you grew up in. Um, And hopefully over the next few minutes, I will explain why that might've been taught that way and why, that is actually the case. Um, and some of you, as we read this passage, might have thought, okay, here we go again. Like, there is literally sex and the word hell in the same passage. Like, here goes the church again, um, telling me that if I do this, I'm going to hell. Um, let me just say this. Um, the idea that the Bible views sex as this evil, bad, gross thing um, could not be further from the truth. Um, God invented sex. Uh, sex was God's idea. He invented it. God created it. Um, The Bible goes out of its way to celebrate sex, actually. I could make this next few minutes really awkward, really fast, if I just flipped over to Song of Solomon and started reading all of the beautiful things in the Bible about sex. And I'm not going to, uh, so you don't have to, you know, brace yourself or anything like that. Um, But the Bible is chock full of beautiful language around sex. It's a good thing. It's a God idea. It's his idea for us. It's God's gift to marriage. It's a good thing. But here's the problem. There's a biblical sex ethic or a biblical teaching around sex, and then there's a cultural teaching around sex. And both of these are massively different. Massively different. And this morning, I want to take a few minutes and just compare the two. Um, And let me just say this, especially to the teenagers in the room, um, culture might be the world that we live in. It might be, you know, part of the reality that we live in. But culture is a terrible, terrible standard for truth. If you are deriving what is true about life, what is true about relationships, what is true about people, what is true about sex, especially from culture, you are setting yourself up for so much damage, so much lack of intimacy, so much regret. Culture might be the world and the current environment that we live in, but it is a terrible standard to derive truth from because the truth about culture changes every day. What culture valued and said was appropriate and said was cool a month ago is different than what it says is valuable and appropriate and cool today, isn't it? You can look over the past few months and see the different things that culture has valued and now thrown to the wayside. Let me give you some examples. Um, culture essentially teaches, uh, we see this with celebrities, we see this with kind of the pop stars and all those kind of things. Um, we see celebrities intentionally wear less and less clothing to draw attention to themselves, right? 
I'm gonna wear less clothing at this event so I can get more attention, so I can be in the news, so I can get more popular, I can get more fame, I can get more streams on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever it is, right? And the subliminal message in all of that is that to get attention, I need to be sexual. That's the subliminal message. To show up, to wear less clothing, to do all those things, is that if you want attention, to get attention is to be sexual. Now, what happens, though, when a teenage guy or a teenage girl buys into culture's view of, 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 of that truth? That if you want attention, you gotta be sexual. And then teenagers start being more sexual to get attention. What names are they called, right? Students in the room, you can probably think of some, think of the, the, the conversations in the cafeteria in the locker room of how people are described. This is what happens when you obey culture's sexual ethic, especially around modesty is reveal more, show more, and you get more attention. And what happens when you start doing those things? You end up with more regret, more shame, more name-calling, more gossip, all of those kind of things, right? We see it all over the place. And what's crazy about this is I'll never forget this interview. When I was in college, um, I was watching this interview of this um, psychiatrist who was interviewing and trying to learn from these uh, sex offenders who'd volunteered to be a part of this interview and um, this is what he said, which was so crazy. He said, the offender said, um, if you want to groom a child, teach them early on that the most important thing about them is how they look. Teach a child early on that the most important thing about them is how they look. Think about our culture. What is, what is the value? What is the ethic that it screams out all over the place? Is it matters how you look? Gotta throw a filter on that. Gotta make sure it's appealing Gotta make sure it looks good. If it doesn't get enough attention on Instagram, yeah, just delete it. Didn't look good enough. Try again next time, right? That the most important thing about you is how they look. And here's what was scary and like gave me goosebumps as I'm watching this, is this offender said, today the culture pretty much does that for me. I don't even have to, to do that anymore. Culture doesn't. That's the cultural ethic. Cultural Culture says sex is this consumer good. Uh, we use sex to advertise cheeseburgers, to sell tickets, to sell cars, cologne, you name it. We put sex in movies, TV shows, advertisements. And what culture communicates by all of these things subliminally is that sex is just no big deal. They do it when it feels right. You like them, they like you. No problem, no consequences, doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody has to know about it, that it's just no big deal. But what happens when you mess around or you mess up sexually, right? Culture brings you to the line that it's not a big deal. It's no problem. It's just like exercise, right? It's just this physical thing, no attachment, no nothing, no consequences. And then someone messes up sexually. Culture will turn around and stab you in the back, won't it? Crucify this person. Make sure they're never around children. Make sure they never get a job. Right? It's harmless, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't hurt, and then someone obeys the culture and then cancel them, cut them out, right? What happens when we communicate that this is harmless, there's nothing wrong with it, and then someone gets addicted to this thing that was so harmless? How does the culture view them then, right? Culture will tow you to the line, and then as soon as you cross it, they'll turn around and they'll stab you in the back. That's the cultural ethic about sex. It is a consumer good. It's a consumer good. I mean, look at the evolution of our music and we can see the evolution of our culture regarding sex. Our music has changed from 
you know, I want to hold your hand to like insert the name of a top 40 song, right? Used to be me and Caroline touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching you, sweet Caroline. There it is. Yeah, right? That was as good as it gets. Good times never felt so good. Me and Caroline holding hands. And now look at our music. I'm not even going to think about or mention a song title or read any lyrics um, for the sake of the fact that this is being recorded, right? Um, it just, it, our, our music has increasingly become more sexual, and the side effects of that is it is also, because you don't just increase one, it's become more violent, more condemning, more shameful, more prideful, more depressing, and more suicidal over the years, too, hasn't it? This is culture's view of sex. The American Psychological Association says there's a direct correlation between multiple sex partners and depression in women. And by multiple, it doesn't mean like seven, or eight, nine partners. It means like two or three. Direct correlation to depression. And we are just flooded with Sex in advertisements, in TV shows, it's everywhere, right? The pornification of culture. Let me read you a few stats. Um, we have the access to the World Wide Web sitting in our pockets. More than a third of all internet traffic is porn related. One out of every four internet searches on the globe is porn related. 70% of all paid content online is pornographic material. The porn industry is a $97 billion a year industry. That is more revenue than Facebook, Amazon, Disney, McDonald's, Google, and Microsoft combined. The porn industry has more revenue than all of professional sports combined. It's everywhere. During this sermon, over 30 million people will view pornographic content on the internet. Almost 50%, 47% of families in the U.S. reported, these are just the ones that reported it, that pornography is a problem in their homes. Let me just put the focus on me for a second so you don't feel like I'm trying to shame you. 68% of church-going men and more than 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. 76% of young Christian adults, 18 to 24, actively view pornography. 56% of all American divorces are due to some use of pornography. And this one's scary, and then I'll, let me just say this, none of this is to shame you, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. It's just to, to expose the reality of the world in which we are living and the effects of culture, sexual ethic. This is the result when we let culture define and determine and we learn from culture what sex is. This one is scary. Uh, a few years ago, this anti-pornography group um, did this survey and kind of this study, and what they did was they examined um, the deaths of 130 different former porn industry people, porn stars. They took their deaths and they took the average death age of 130 people in 2016, and the average span of life for someone in that industry was 37 years old. And our culture is telling us that this doesn't hurt anybody that it's not harmful, that it's just you, nobody has to know. 37 years old. 
The average lifespan in 2016 in the U.S. was 79. But our culture will try to scream from the rooftops that this isn't a big deal. It's just physical. No consequences, right? Just whenever it feels right for you. And let me just say this, and I I don't say this to to get a rise or anything like that. I say this really humbly and carefully. Um, if, If sex was just this physical thing, right? Um, then why is it that when someone is harmed sexually that they don't get over it like they would just a physical wound, right? If it's just physical, if that's all culture wants to tell us, it's just a physical thing, no mental, no emotional involvement, no spiritual involvement. If it's just a physical action, then why is it that when someone is hurt sexually, when someone is abused sexually, that this is a pain that stays with them for years and years to come? If it's just something physical, right, the wounds heal and you just move on. Because I think we all, deep down, we know that this isn't just something physical. That God has designed this for a specific purpose. And it's just just as much scripturally and biblically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, just as involved during sex. And science even tells us that there is no such thing as casual sex. Most of us know that when you engage in any kind of pornography or lust or anything like that, um, you get this hit of dopamine in your brain, right? It's the feel-good chemical. It's the same chemical you get, um, you know, if you're a teenager and your phone buzzes and it's like, oh, yes, feels good, attention, or someone likes a post on your Instagram, right? A hit of dopamine, all those kind of things. What we don't teach and don't realize, at, there's also, when we engage in this pornographic material, the, the chemical oxytocin, which is, released in our brains, which is the same chemical that is released with like when a mother breastfeeds. It's, it's to, to create, it's a bonding agent. So what happens is when we engage in this material, this um, dopamine hits and we train our body with a, a image or something that is fabricated, it's not real, it's edited, it's scripted, all of those kind of things. We are training our, our brain and our body to feel good with something that's not real to the point where a real body is no longer good enough. And we don't even have to dive into all of the negative stats around dysfunction and um, the average age of people getting married is later and all of those kind of things as a direct result of this. But then now we've got this chemical that we, we're very aware of, that now there's this bonding agent with something that isn't real and scripted and fake and all of those kind of things. That when we engage in this material, we are bonding and attaching ourselves to it. Scientifically, there's no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as it's just physical. But that's the cultural ethic. And here's the goal. I am not trying to say any of this to shame anyone or to guilt anyone. There is good news for us, right? I'm not blaming you. You didn't create the internet, right? This is not your fault. This is not my fault. But it is now our problem. And as moms and dads, husbands and wives, teenagers in the room, we need to realize that. This isn't our fault, but this has now become our problem because we have these devices and these means to access this stuff in our own pockets. Our school gives us a tablet and students are creative enough where they can dodge certain filters and all those kind of things, right? It's not our fault, but it is now our problem. So what is the biblical sex ethic? Let's define that for a second. We've talked about culture and the double standards and all of those kind of things. The biblical sex ethic, I can give it to you in one word, it's covenant. Every time sex is mentioned in scripture, it is within the context of a covenant. Not just a verbal promise, but like a covenant, a marriage covenant. That's 
every context that sex is mentioned in scripture, unless it's being forbidden outside of a covenant, it is mentioned within the safety and the context of a, of a covenant. And a covenant is so much more than just a legal, you know, government-sanctioned relationship. A covenant is so much more emotional, so much more vulnerable, so much more intense. It's far more than just enduring a relationship. A consumer relationship says this. Consumer relationship says, because culture says, the sex ethic of culture is it's a consumer good, right? And consumer relationships say, you adjust to meet my needs, right? You adjust to meet my needs or else I'm out of here. Common example of, of a consumer relationship is just teenage dating. And I'm not picking on the teenagers this morning. It's just an easy illustration to see this, right? I'm in this relationship until I'm not in it anymore. I'm in it as long as it, it serves me, as long as it makes me popular, whatever it is. And as soon as I see something better or as soon as I'm bored with this, I'm out, right? That's a consumer relationship. It's you meet my needs, and when you don't, I'm out. A covenant relationship says, I'll adjust to meet your needs because I made you a promise for a lifetime because the covenant is more important than my needs. You see the difference? A covenant relationship says, I'll adjust to meet your needs. A consumer relationship, you are never secure. In a consumer relationship, if it is built on you um, pleasing that person and them being pleased with you and them being um, you know, happy with you and you're not annoying and all those kind of things, you will never be secure. You're always wondering, am I saying too much? Am I not saying enough, right? Do I need to tone down? Do I need to talk more? When we talk, do we need to talk about things that are serious? Do we need to talk about things that aren't so serious? Do we need to keep it kind of shallow, right? Do I text? Do I not? Do I call? Is that too much? Like That's a consumer relationship is always being insecure and wondering if you're doing enough to meet this person's needs. It's never secure. Could they walk out at any moment? There's no safety in that. And in a consumer relationship, you're always having to market yourself, right? This is why, um, side note, this is why all of the studies and stats about living together before marriage um, says it highly increases the likelihood of divorce. Because woman after woman says it was like I was on a two or three year audition to be his wife. I was never secure. I was always trying to be good enough so that he would finally put a ring on it and love me. All of those kind of things. You're never secure. It's never safe in a consumer relationship. There's no safety. There's no security to let your guard down, to be honest about who you are, your imperfections. There's none of that. There's no freedom in a, in a consumer relationship. And here's what's so different about this. Um, in a consumer relationship, there's a lot of thrill at the beginning, right? In a dating relationship, there's tons of thrill. But here's what's crazy about it is as you get to know the person over time, the thrill dies in a consumer relationship. Then you pull out, get out of the relationship, and you go find someone else that's more thrilling, right? In a covenant relationship, yeah, there's some thrill when it starts, but the relationship's not built on thrill. It's built on a promise, and as you begin to know that person more and do life with them more and experience them more and be honest about your brokenness and your openness and all those kind of things more, the love actually grows over time. See the difference? A consumer relationship is all about the thrill. And when the thrill's gone, I'm gone. There's no safety in that. There's no security in that. A covenant relationship is all about the promise and the person. There's freedom in a covenant relationship. If you're in a consumer relationship, you are a slave to the other person's feelings and you have to act and perform and do right to maintain 
their feelings. You want to be free? Enter into a covenant relationship. Why? And you're like, okay, I get it. You've made the point, but what does all this have to do with sex? The Bible presents sex not as a consumer good, but a covenant good. Over and over and over again, sex is not a a consumer thing. It is a covenant thing. Consumer sex is I'll use this to win someone's feelings. I'll use this to earn their love. I'll use this to keep their approval. I'll use this so they'll see me and finally love me and notice me. The Bible says sex is not designed to be that way. It is designed to be a celebration of a covenant. And sex outside of marriage actually lacks integrity. Because think about it, what is it? What is sex outside of the context of a covenant? It's I wanna be physically vulnerable with you, but I'm going to withhold my financial vulnerability, my emotional vulnerability, my mental vulnerability, my legal vulnerability, all of those kind of things. I'm gonna keep all of that to myself, but I would love to use your physical vulnerability to satisfy my desires. You see how there's no integrity in that? I wanna be completely physically vulnerable with you, but I wanna keep all of these other things to myself because I don't think you're worthy of my financial vulnerability and my emotional vulnerability and my legal vulnerability, my spiritual vulnerability. I just want to use your love tonight, right? That's consumer sex. You're asking someone to do with your body what you're not willing to do with your life. There's no integrity in that. There's no safety in that. There's no security in that. Let's be physically vulnerable but I don't want you enough to be vulnerable with you in all these other areas. Sex, biblically, is physical vulnerability that is a celebration and functions within the safety of a covenant promise of emotional, mental, financial, legal, and spiritually, spiritual vulnerability. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. It's trying to isolate this one part to satisfy your desires. To have physical union outside of a covenant union is a complete lack of integrity. But if you have physical union inside the safety and the security of till death do us part and in sickness and in health and this covenant promise then it becomes a covenant reunion ceremony. It's essentially what it is. It's like getting married all over again. It's renewing this promise. It's celebrating the financial, the spiritual, the legal, the mental, the emotional vulnerability with your bodies. And that's the safety that it was designed to function in. You see the difference? Culture says sex is a consumer good. Biblically, sex is a covenant good. That's where it belongs, within the safety and the context of a covenant before God and before man. When you think about pornography, pornography is the complete opposite of that. There's not even another person present, right? It's using um, an image of someone, a video of someone, any kind of material solely to satisfy your desires. It's consuming 101, completely devoid of any relationship. Sex outside of marriage, close behind it, right? You cannot have sex outside of the covenant of marriage and not have sex for selfish reasons. It's to earn something, to get something, to prove something, to show something, to wish for something. It is never just to completely give to someone that you've made a covenant with. 
It is always to try to earn or to get. There's always some selfishness wrapped in it. Our culture is rampant with this, and the good news is that Jesus has something to say about it. The Pharisees were reducing this rule down to outward external righteousness. Hey, just if I haven't committed physical adultery, I'm righteous. What does Jesus say? He raises the standard. Look at verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Pharisees thought it was this external standard. And um, I won't read you the quote, but John Calvin essentially says they had to. Right? If you're going to stand before people and proclaim that you're righteous, then you have to be foolishly and not very carefully looking at your own sin. If you're going to try to convince people that you're righteous, you can't look at your own sin very hard, can you? And that's exactly what they were doing. They were just giving the external standard and Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get it. I don't want to just deal with your hands and the work of your hands, the external adultery. I want to deal with the seed of adultery in your heart, which is lust and looking at people to satisfy your own desires. Jesus shows them that the true standard of the kingdom, the beauty of heaven, is not just gonna be that people aren't committing adultery. It's that there won't be any looking at someone to use them to satisfy your own desires. We will love and cherish and celebrate people for who they are, that they're made in the image of God, and we will have complete, pure intimacy and friendship with other brothers and sisters. There won't be any selfishness, any using of them to satisfy anything in us. And Jesus says, you don't have to wait for that later. That is a reality of the coming kingdom, but you have the Holy Spirit. You've died, as Colossians says, you've died to the deeds of the flesh and now you've been raised with Christ so you can die to the power of sin in your life and you can raise to newness of life and walk in freedom in Christ. You don't have to wait till then to start looking at people and treating people like that now and loving and cherishing them having healthy, pure intimacy with people in your heart. Um, He's dealing with not just the activity, but he wants to deal with the seed of adultery in our heart. It's like, um, how do you kill fire ants, right? Other than going to Lowe's and just spraying a bunch of stuff that has fire ants on the front or anything like that. How do you truly deal with fire ants? You have to get into the colony. You have to get into the nest and kill the queen. Jesus is saying, I'm not just trying to kill few ants on the outside. I'm trying to get into your heart and deal with the seed of adultery, which we all have. We all have the seed of murder in our hearts, which is anger and envy and bitterness, and rivalry and all those kind of things. And we all have the seed of adultery in our hearts, which is lust. We all have it. C.S. Lewis likened it to like a nasty lizard that sits on your shoulder and puts its claws in your shoulder and just whispers filth to you over and over and over again. Lust says, I don't want a person, I just want pleasure. And this person or this picture is just a means to get my pleasure. Covenant love says, I want my person. Lust says, I want any any picture, any woman in general, any man in general to use for my pleasure. Covenant love says, I want to love and celebrate the one that I'm in covenant with. Jesus is getting after the seed of this in our hearts. And you wanna know how seriously he takes it? Look at what he says next, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. 
Jesus uses some insanely strong language here, right? Tear out your eyes, cut off your hands. Why? Because this isn't just a small issue. This isn't just a small stumble. This isn't just a, yeah, I'll deal with this later. Yeah, I'll stop this when I get married. Yeah, I'll quit this when I want to. I've got it under control. Don't worry. It's not hurting anybody. I'll, I'll figure this out. I'll deal with this later. This isn't one of those issues. Look at where the stumbling takes you. He says it can take you all the way to hell. Can your lust, apart from Christ and apart from the gospel, can your lust, unindulged in, unrepented of, unconfessed, can it ensnare you enough and suffocate you and rob you from, from intimacy with God and intimacy with others to the point where you end up separated with God forever? It sure can. Jesus says this is not something we deal with casually or lightly. This isn't. But I do want to make sure that you don't leave here thinking that he literally means to tear out your eyes and cut off your hands every time that you lust. Otherwise, I can only speak for the men in here, but all the men in here would have been guided in here by their wives without any eyes or any hands, right? Because we've all, we're all guilty of this. We all, it's, at some point in our lives, and frequently look at people to try to gratify and use them to satisfy some desires in us. We're all guilty of this. Um, but he doesn't mean actually cut off your hand and tear out your eyes. Unfortunately, there was this guy in the late 200s, early 300s, his name was Origen of Alexandria, um, who took this literally and like cut off his limbs, deprived himself of food and sleep and all these kind of things. And uh, unfortunately, the Council of Nicaea a few years later said, yeah, yeah, he didn't mean literally. And then you've got this guy who's like, well, that would have been nice to know, right? Um, but the heart and his intent was good, Right. It was, I don't want to stumble in this. I don't want this to take me to eternal separation from, from Christ. And how do we know he doesn't mean literally, just for some of you who are kind of skeptics and like, how do you know that? Because if you think about it, Jesus was using hyperbole here, which is just strong language to make a point. He does mean take it seriously, and we'll talk about that. But even if you removed your eyes, and even if you removed your hands, you could still lust, couldn't you? Sure can even without eyes and without hands. One of the beauties of God making us in his image is he has given us a wild imagination. And it has produced a lot of good in our world and in our society, but it has also produced a lot of bad in our hearts. And even if you walked in here without any eyes and without any hands, you and I could still be guilty of lust. So no, he's not saying we need to actually cut off our limbs, but he is saying we must deal radically with this issue. This is not something to be taken lightly. This affects your intimacy with Christ. This affects your intimacy with your spouse. This affects your intimacy with your family and your friends, coworkers, you name it. Let me just read to you some of the descriptions of how scripture describes sexual sin. It says it's bitter as wormwood. It's like feet going down to death. It says wounds and dishonor, forbidden intoxication. Proverbs says it's like an ox going to the slaughter. It's like a bird going to the snare. And then Proverbs also says it will not go unpunished. That this is a sin that we are all guilty of in heart and that Jesus is going right at and saying the kingdom way is not just that you don't commit physical adultery, it's that we don't look at one another to try to gratify our own desires and try to use someone for pleasure and satisfaction. Jesus, I won't read it to you. We'll probably skip the, the part of Matthew 18, but Jesus 
use this hyperbole often. In fact, like three or four times in the Gospels, and in Matthew 18, later on, Jesus isn't talking about sexual sin. He's talking about all sin, but he even includes your feet. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your feet cause you to sin, cut them off too. This was a common teaching of Jesus. Like, we have to deal with sin. Yes, the gospel is true, that if you're in Christ, your sin is paid for. But as Paul says in Romans, it doesn't give us an excuse to just stay in it. Why would you return to that thing that caused so much death in your life and in your relationships? We don't return back to that thing. Proverbs says it's like a, a dog returning to its vomit is a fool returning back to his folly. It is still affects our intimacy with Christ, our sin at this point, if you're in Christ, if you have been saved by the grace of God, your sin does not affect your legal standing before Christ, you're justified. But it does affect your intimacy with Christ and it affects your intimacy with your spouse and with your children and with your neighbors and coworkers and everybody else. And this is the fight that we're in. And this is the fight that Jesus is encouraging us to endure. John Calvin says this, he says, Christ employs an exaggerated form of speech to show that whatever hinders us from yielding that obedience to God, which he requires in his law, ought to be cut off. And he does so expressly because men allow themselves too much liberty in that respect. If the mind were pure, the eyes and hands would be obedient to it, for it is certain that they have no movement of their own. But how, but here we are deeply to blame. And here's what I want you to see this last sentence. We are so far from being as careful as we ought to be to avoid allurements that we rather provoke our senses to wickedness by allowing them unbounded liberty. John Calvin says, in this issue especially, we are so far from being careful, for taking this seriously, that we are essentially inviting our flesh to indulge in this and to sin. We're so far from taking it as seriously as we should. It's not hurting anybody, it's fine, I'll deal with it later. Not a big deal, nobody has to know about it. Unlimited access, no restrictions to the internet. Not a big deal, right? Don't wanna talk about it, could create an awkward conversation with my children. We are so far that we're almost inviting ourselves to sin because we have just given ourselves unbounded liberty. All these actions, that produce guilt and shame in us, all these externals first start with internal actions that cause us to be guilty and experience shame. Paul says this in Romans, and I want you to see this, um, this instruction that he gives us. He's talking about salvation. I'm just gonna read verse 14, but he's talking about salvation and it's near and it's here and we should live um, with the reality that we are in the end times. The only thing that is left to happen is that for Christ to return, like everything else in redemptive history has happened. The prophets have spoken, the Messiah came, he has earned our salvation, he ascended, he died, rose, ascended. Like the only thing that's left is for him to return. And then what does Paul say? He says, but put on, here's our instruction. I'll start in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh, zero. So if this thing is causing you to sin sexually, causing you to lust, don't make provision. Don't go to bed with this next to you, next to your head at night, right? If having un, 
limited access, no restrictions on this thing is causing you to sin sexually, then get rid of it. Put some restrictions, do something, right? It would be like an alcoholic or someone who struggles with alcohol pouring a glass of scotch and just putting it on the nightstand at night and going to bed and going, man, I hope I don't mess up, right? If you look at Jesus saying the eyes and the hands and the feet, what are you entertaining in your eyes? What are you making provision for you to mess up? Sexual sin is not an accident. Sexual sin is a result of lots of decisions beforehand that led to sexual sin. It's entertaining messages privately on social media. It's the shows you watch that trigger these things. It's the commercials you view, right? It's the YouTube channels you follow. Whatever it is, what is making provision for your flesh to sin? And Paul says, cut it out. Jesus says, cut it out. If it's things you're watching with your eyes, tear them out. If it's places you're going with your feet, cut them out. Do you need to change your route to work? Do it. Do you need to change the places you frequent, the places you go to lunch, wherever it is? Do it. And the things you do with your hands, the devices, the hobbies, the interest, whatever it is. If that is making provision for you to sin sexually, which will hinder your relationship with the Lord and your relationships here on earth with your spouse and with your children, with your family, your friends, cut it out. We've got to take this seriously. Paul, Jesus, everybody says, make no provision for the flesh. As believers who have been saved by the grace of God, we have to be willing to forego and to cut out to amputate certain experiences of this world because we're not living for this world, we're living for the next world. And if things in this world are affecting my intimacy and my relationship with Christ and my preparation for the next world, then I cut them out of this world. We've gotta be willing to do that. Got to. And I just wanna say this, especially to the teenagers in the room. Giving up something now for something better later is not a sacrifice, it's an investment. Giving up something now for something better later, you're not sacrificing, you're actually investing in your future. So heed this warning, students in the room, date like nobody else now, because all of this that I'm saying this morning is countercultural. You're probably like, Parker, nobody in my school is gonna do this. But date like nobody else now, so that you can have a marriage like nobody else later. Live like nobody else now, so that you can live like nobody else later. It's not a sacrifice, it's actually an investment. And I don't say this, I'm tempted not to say this. I don't say this arrogantly. I don't say this um, to try to be the gold standard. It is solely by God's grace that I was able to enter into my marriage without having sex before. And talk about an investment that I can know that when I'm with my wife that because of the sacrifice, because of the investment that I made as a single guy, that she never has to worry about me comparing herself to somebody else. That when we're together, that she doesn't have to worry about all these memories about somebody else coming up. It wasn't a sacrifice. It was a massive investment in our relationship. And I don't say that to shame anybody else. In light of the gospel, um, intimacy can be found. God's grace goes way deeper than our sin ever could. And there's still intimacy possible or anything and all of those things. Like, I'm not saying that if you've messed up in that area that you can't have intimacy. By God's grace, you sure can. You certainly can. But it doesn't mean we go and disobey and entertain those things, as Paul would say in Romans, because God's grace covers it. He says, by no means. 
Live like nobody else now so you can live like no one else later. It's a worthy investment in your life and in your marriage and your relationships. Those of you that are married, it's not too late. Be married like nobody else in our culture now so that you can have a marriage later like nobody else. Invest. Um, Weird illustration. Some of you, I don't know, this message can land in a lot of places. Um, Some of you, uh, if you remember Harry Potter, uh, we were reading that recently together uh, as we were driving to Oklahoma and stuff like that. And uh, at the end of Harry Potter, there's this kid named Neville and, uh, you know, they're trying to win the house cup, all those kind of things. Essentially, um, Harry Potter has, you know, done some awesome stuff and only got like 60 points, which is weird to me. But he's tied, uh, Gryffindor's tied with Slytherin and they're trying to win all those things. And all that to say, um, Dumbledore looks at the school and says that, There is some courage. There's a lot of courage to stand up to your enemies. But then he says it takes a greater courage and a special courage and a different kind of courage to stand up to your friends. Some of you in here, the application for you this morning might mean that you have the courage to let somebody else into your life, a friend, that you stop living in the dark, that you let somebody in, that you add some restrictions to your unbound liberty when it comes to internet access or when it comes to where you go, your communication, your cell phone, whatever it is. And for others of us, let's have the courage as brothers and sisters in Christ to stand up to friends and to say, speak the truth and love and to call these things out in us for the purpose of our sanctification, but not just that, for our families, for our marriages, for our children, for our homes, for this community. And lastly, I'm just gonna jump down for the sake of time. Um, We will cover verses 31 and 32 next time, but I do wanna honor your time. Let me just say this. Uh, We'll address that, I promise you, we won't leave it untouched. Uh, We'll probably have some time at the top of next week to, to explain that to you. But let me just say this, regardless of where you are, I know this message can land in a lot of different places for you. Um, The goodness of the gospel is this. All throughout scripture, we see Jesus take, for example, the woman at the well, right? Had five husbands. The woman that she's with now is not her husband. Does Jesus shame her? Jesus condemn her? No. In fact, the first person to ever hear on this earth that Jesus was the Messiah was that woman. She's the one who Jesus first revealed. Hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that the prophet spoke about. She's trying to find her satisfaction, her fulfillment in relationships, in sex most likely, in in earthly human relationships, and guys, and Jesus says, I've got living water for you that will never make you thirsty again. You're looking for something in this world that you can only find in me. And I'm the one who you've been looking for. I've got living water, and it's in the gospel. You don't have to go and find it in this world. The woman caught in adultery, this brought before Jesus, like literally caught in the act, naked before all of these scribes and Pharisees and these men laying on the dirt. What does Jesus do? And if you wanna know, if you like wanna insert yourself in the story, we're not the people on the outside watching, like how's Jesus gonna view adultery? No, we're the one caught in adultery, all of us, because of the lust of our hearts. Over and over again, we have committed adultery towards the God of the universe. We're the ones caught, and what does Jesus do? He kneels down and he looks at these men and says, hey, if any of you are without sin, throw a stone at her. They drop their stones and Jesus says, does no one condemn you? Neither do I. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, zero. 
God's grace is deep enough, it's long enough, it's wide enough to cover your biggest regrets and the shame that you're carrying regarding sexual sin. There is no condemnation in Christ and there is no separation from his love. He says, does no one condemn you? Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. Receive my grace and now go live in response to it. And just like her, over and over and over again, you and I, we have looked to people, we have looked to relationships, we have looked to images, we have looked to things to satisfy pleasure in our hearts. We try to use things to gratify our desires. We have committed adultery over and over again against the God of the universe, and he was the one who was faithfully and always has, always will honor his covenant with us. We've broken it over and over again, and the good news of the gospel is God has kept his end of the covenant in our place. And in fact, he sent his son to keep our end. God kept his end that if we obey perfectly and righteously, that he'll save us. And we kept breaking that. So what did God do? He sent Jesus to live in our place so that he could meet both ends of the covenant in our place. So that you and I could have perfect intimacy, perfect peace, perfect joy in Christ, despite your sin, despite your shame. So let your shame hit the floor this morning. Let it go. You're past, my past, my sexual sin, your sexual sin, it describes us, but in light of the gospel, it does not define us. You are not defined by your worst mistakes sexually. You're not defined by those regrets. If you are in Christ, you are defined by the scars in his hands, the nails in his feet, and his blood shed for you. That the only one who did not deserve to be condemned, went to the cross and was condemned in our place so that you and I could not be condemned by the God of the universe and we could go and sin no more. So let the gospel seep into whatever shame that you're carrying this morning. There's no condemnation. And however the Holy Spirit prompts you to respond to this message, there's a lot of things. Second Timothy, I won't read this or it won't be on the screens, but Second Timothy says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness along with those who call on to the Lord with a pure heart. That we do this in community. Some of you, your first response needs to be just to let somebody know, let somebody in. Others of you, you might need to talk about restrictions, all of those kind of things. We don't leave here doing this to try to earn God's love. We do it because we already have it. And a God who would love me and a God who would run after me just like Hosea ran after Gomer, a God who would run after someone so unfaithful as I am over and over again, I wanna do all that I can to love and to obey a God like that. Not to try to get his love, but because he's already given it to me. That's the goodness of the gospel. I just wanna give you a minute to think about how you might need to respond to this message. Decisions you might need to make, conversations you might need to have. And the band's going to lead us um, in song as we close. But just take a minute. Pray to the Lord. Ask him to search your heart. Some of you, the Holy Spirit's probably already moved, and you might know what you need to do. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. But it's needed. For your intimacy with Christ and for the sake of your relationships, maybe current relationships, if you're a teenager in the room, your future relationship one day. Take a minute and the band will lead us. Lord, give us the courage to do what we need to do.